So protein degraders are a new class of therapeutics uh, which target specific disease-causing proteins and tag them for elimination in the cell. So proteins, as you may know, are the fundamental molecular machines of the cell. Many proteins have multiple functions in the cell. Traditional inhibitors address a single function of those proteins. Protein degraders actually have the ability to address all of the functions that a particular protein has, and it does so by eliminating the protein altogether so it's not available to, to work at all. Because of that ability, it makes the drug both more effective and because of the specificity, safer. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I'm your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. Back in Season 2, we briefly touched upon the possibility of using targeted protein degradation as a therapeutic tool. Today, we are going to dive deeper into this topic. It is my pleasure to introduce to you Dr. Beth Hoffman, the founder, president, and CEO of Origami Therapeutics. Beth is a true icon of the pharmaceutical industry. She spent almost 25 years working in CNS drug discovery and was involved in the development of over 30 therapeutic molecules. Most notably, she led the discovery and development of a few first-in-class blockbuster drugs for cystic fibrosis at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Her most recent venture, Origami Therapeutics, is focusing on developing protein degraders aiming at neurodegenerative disorders, and specifically at Huntington's disease. Beth is very actively involved in key scientific societies advancing our progress in neurodegenerative diseases. She is a member of the Board of Trustees for the Huntington's Disease Society of America, as well as a scientific advisor for the Tau Consortium focusing on alleviating diseases associated with Tau pathology, such as Alzheimer's disease. Beth, thank you so much for accepting my invitation, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Great, Beth. I would like to start with your story. I'm curious to hear what got you interested in molecular biology and how that interest led you to the place you are at today. Well, I think at heart, I was always a scientist, uh, cutting up worms when I was fishing with my dad and things like that. But I'd say my first realization was my first biology class in high school. Um, and then I went on to do an NSF-sponsored program for high school students. It was 10 weeks of intensive biochemistry, and I realized that I just loved it, and I loved working with people on the science, and it was just so incredibly exciting. We didn't sleep a lot. We worked a lot. When I returned home, I think I slept for three days straight, and my parents started to wonder <laughs> if I was okay, if I was still in there alive. Um, at that point in my life, the, it's the best thing I, ever, I had ever done. So I caught the biology bug, and then I went on to do undergraduate work in molecular biology at Wellesley College, and then my PhD in cell biology with a focus on molecular pharmacology at Johns Hopkins University. 
Perfect. Perfect. I'm curious to hear also what got you then later into the biotech industry. Uh, what was was your motivation, inspiration to to switch from academia to to the industry sort side of things? Well, as I think I mentioned, I really like uh, the process of working with people on science and the brainstorming. And so, um, uh, but my real motivation was I was interested in medicine. Um, for a while, I thought I wanted to go to medical school, but then I figured that really my talents were much better used in research, and so I went on to get my PhD. And so my my thinking was always um, to to help people and have an impact on on people's suffering. Perfect, understood. And uh, you've spent so much time now in the biotech industry, in the drug discovery, and obviously that's a space that has undergone fundamental changes uh, over the last few decades. So I'm curious to hear from you, what do you think those most important uh, changes were uh, as you witnessed them firsthand? So I think what's really transformed sort of the way we develop therapeutics are a number of new techniques. And those cover areas like molecular biology, imaging, mass spectrometry, um, and access to patient-derived cells, including um, induced pluripotent stem cells. And so um, the use of all of this um, has generated a sh- huge volume of data. And in turn, that's created the need for artificial intelligence and machine learning to pull all the data together so that we can generate appropriate insights into the correlation and causation. And all in all, uh, this has really led to a better understanding of disease biology and biology of the cell. So, for example, the ability to modify DNA. We can make transgenic animals, look at gene expression, look at the proteins, and look at what's really happening in the cell at a higher level, and as well as what's happening in organisms. So all of this is really important for the drug drug development process. So it's a collection of technological advances. The techniques are critical. What has really stayed the same in a way are the questions that we need to ask. And so these techniques really lend themselves to helping us ask those questions in a better way. I want to touch on the AI and um, robotics a bit because I think that's something that really has come to the fore recently um, uh, and and there's a lot of discussion about it. And I think the way to think about artificial intel- intelligence and machine learning as well as the robotics is that this really accelerates the drug discovery and development process by helping us understand what we're looking at, organizing the complexity of the data um, that we get from these technological advances and also allowing robots to do the work, um, that repetitive work. So first then people don't kind of wear out their hands. Um, but also that allows the scientists to really spend time looking at the data and thinking about it. And I think all in all, this, this, um, has the opportunity to really accelerate drug discovery. I think all of us are hoping that will be true. Perfect. Yeah, completely agree with you, especially on that last point on, on the robotics. I think all of us and all of the uh, people in the audience who are scientists probably understand the pain of the bench work and like how much time it takes to just like pipe at a 96 well played or uh, or an execute execute an experiment if you can really push that um, robotics, the widespread use of robotics and automation in the lab that would just free up so much time for scientists to really 
spend time on what their real core activity and value add uh, is, uh, designing new experiments and uh, testing new hypotheses. Yeah, and I think the other the other uh, aspect of it too is that um, you it's much more reproducible. Yeah. So even though we think we're doing exactly the same thing, you, when the ro- when you have the automation, you know that's happening. Now, of course, they're machines and they need to be fixed and all those good things. Um, in balance, it's uh, it's hugely important. Perfect. Great. Uh, Beth, uh, what I'm really curious about, how the idea for, for your current company, for Origami Therapeutics, came about, and what was the inspiration behind it? So I have to say that this really, um, the inspiration came from the work while I was a, a vice president of discovery biology at Vertex Pharmaceuticals out in the San Diego site. And um, the the ability to show that the correctors for cystic fibrosis um, really did work and bringing the blockbuster candidates to market, this really made me think about how we could use the same kind of science, the science behind protein misfolding, and apply it to um, a great deal of my background, which has been in CNS disorders. So um, at origami, that's the basis of of what we're doing um, and why it's named origami. So, you know, origami is the art of um, folding paper and origami therapeutics is the science of folding proteins, at least that's um, how I, I like to think about it. And so we're starting with Huntington's disease. Um, and, um, and the basis for that is that there are really interesting parallels uh, between Huntington's disease and cystic fibrosis, even though uh, they affect different organs in the body. Perfect. And um, perhaps for those in our audience who haven't heard uh, about protein degraders and their application in uh therapeutic space. Can you give like a very quick brief on, on what those are and how we can leverage them to, to treat diseases? Sure. So this is, a, I think, a very uh, exciting area. And I think there's a lot in, in, the, in the news about protein degraders. So protein degraders are a new class of therapeutics, uh, which target specific disease-causing proteins and tag them for elimination in the cell. So proteins, as you may know, are the fundamental molecular machines of the cell. Many proteins have multiple functions in the cell. Traditional inhibitors uh, that have have been available address a single function of those proteins. Protein degraders actually have the ability to address all of the functions that a particular protein has, and it does so by um, eliminating the protein altogether so it's not available to to, to work at all. Um, this makes the drug more, uh, because of, because of the, that ability, it makes the drug both more effective and because of the specificity safer at the same time. And so um, the first protein degraders are working their way through the clinic now. And I think there's a lot of excitement um, to see uh, uh, whether they will meet their promise. Perfect. Yeah, sounds sounds very exciting. And I know that that you are building this platform that based on so called Orecision technology. So maybe you can tell us a little bit more about how does it work. Happy to. So um, 
as, as many platforms do, they have multiple pillars. So the focus of the Oricision platform is the use of human patient-derived cells for optimizing drugs. So based on my previous experience, the use of patient-derived cells to model disease has been crucial to ensure translation of our research findings to positive results in the clinical trials. And oftentimes in drug development, that's where the disconnect comes. Something will look really good in the preclinical research, and you take it into the clinic and for a variety of reasons, it, it doesn't really fulfill the hopes and promises. So layered on top of the use of these patient-derived cells is the examination of multiple layers of biological data. And I've already talked a little bit about the technological advances, and this is really where they, those technological advances layer on to the use of human cells. Um, such as gene expression and protein expression and cell imaging. And so these data are then brought together by the use of machine learning and um, uh, artificial intelligence to model so that we can, and the upshot of that is we're able to optimize and select the best drug candidates for us to move forward into the clinic. So in, in terms of cost and time, even though it does take quite a while, it's a lot of work, the research side actually is relatively less expensive and less time. But the clinical piece is both hugely more expensive and uh, longer in duration. And in addition, you're, you're asking um, people to volunteer to be part of, um, of the clinical trials. And so it's really important that we do our best to get the right, the best drug candidates um, to move forward into the clinic. So in essence, this is where computational biology meets computational chemistry to make impactful therapeutics. Perfect. Yeah, sounds fantastic. And I think uh, this is just a very nice example of, of all of those new, techni new techniques that you mentioned in the beginning of them coming together, essentially having those uh, patient-derived cells, being able to differentiate them properly, maintain them properly, then using high-content screening and advanced omics techniques, getting as much data as possible, and then analyzing them with, with, uh, with those machine learning algorithms just to make, make the best use of that data. And when we speak about your pipeline and, in general, about the targets that, that this approach can be potentially uh, used for. So I'm curious uh, to know which specific proteins are you targeting? Are these typically the proteins that are the cause of, let's say, aggregation in case of neurodegenerative diseases, or there are some perhaps less uh, obvious candidates that you are also after? Yeah, thanks for, th thanks for this question. So at the moment, origami is focused on Huntington's as the first indication, uh, and we have a lead candidate, which we call ORI113 uh, for short, um, and it is focused on the um, protein that's made from the gene that's mutated in Huntington's disease. And that gene um, cleverly is called Huntington. Um, and so that is the, the focus. Um, we like to take a precision medicine approach by targeting the underlying cause of the disease. And the reason for this is that if you target individual symptoms, uh, you may ameliorate some of those, but you won't really have an impact on the disease progression as a whole. And so our goal really is to um, halt neurodegeneration. And if we can develop a safe enough and effective enough molecule so that the benefit way outweighs the risk, our 
our vision is to be able to get in before the disease symptoms even appear and before, in our case, brain cells die um, because it's much harder to replace the brain cells. Um, and so if we can identify the patients, particularly based on uh, a genetic mutation, in theory, we can get in before the symptoms even appear. And so in essence, that that is tantamount to a cure. Yeah, perfect. Uh, great. And in terms of some other neurodegenerative diseases, so obviously Huntington's disease has very clear genetic cause. For some of the diseases, it is not so certain. Um, most of the cases of Alzheimer's disease do not have clear underlying genetic cause. Probably similar uh, story with the Parkinson's disease. Are you trying to target those as well uh, in the long-term perspective? And if yes, um, where the protein degraders can be can be useful there? That that's a great question because I think everybody asks. Um, you know, sometimes they ask why Huntington's, and I think the simple reason there is because of the genetics, and and because we also uh, know who to treat and when to treat and what to measure. In the case of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, I think there's been quite a bit of discussion over the past several years about um, these diseases uh, really be having multiple causes. And so you have some um, subgroups of each of those diseases that are based on genetics. And I think approaching uh, those diseases for which we understand the genetics and also then understand what, what's gone wrong um, with the genes that are mutated, uh, I think in this way, we know what we need to fix. And then we know who we need to recruit into clinical trials. I think both of these angles increase the likelihood of success. So first, the orecision technology enables us to understand the genetic variants of a disease and leverage these learnings to understand what is key for the larger groups of patients. So the expectation is that as we understand more and more and have some real successes in changing um, disease progression in neurodegeneration, we will learn more and more and hopefully be able to address um, the larger group of patients. I also expect that we will get some insights into um, further subgroups. In other words, identify further genes that are mutated and, and are the cause. Um, so in, in the end, the genetics and the environmental factors that affect the cell biology, um, this can all be measured through the Orecision platform. And so that's why we're hopeful that we will be able to address much uh, many other disease indications, and um, ultimately, a uh, broader population. Perfect. Yeah, sounds, sounds very promising. And uh, what I'm also curious about, um, what are the typical challenges in bringing these uh, type of um, medications, this type of uh, pipeline to, to fruition and then to clinics? Because this is a relatively new approach, relatively new technology, and as, as always, there will be a lot of skeptics uh, in the field kind of uh, doubting uh, the, uh, the new approach. So maybe both from the technological perspective and the, from the or organizational or operational perspective, what are the main challenges in, in bringing those, uh, those protein degraders to, to clinics? I mean, I think the really short answer there is um, being willing to um, dive deep into the biology and the understanding. The other piece is not to use a, a single model um, or a single measure uh, of, of, of your 
mechanism of action, um, I think that's going to be um, criti critically important, critically important. And then I think that there's much we can do in terms of um, what we look at in the clinic to, to help us um, be able to see, you know, are we really, do we have something that's effective? Um, so I think really, simply put, th those are really the big keys. We are doing this show for you and your feedback is very important for us. So if you have any suggestions or comments or would like to recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can also reach us on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Just type in Personalized Medicine Podcast and you will find us there. To catch our next episode, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Please rate us there and leave a comment. This helps us make this show better and reach more people interested in personalized medicine. And now, let's get back to the interview. Beth, what I'm really curious about um, is how the recent developments in our understanding of protein structure, speaking, for example, about AlphaFold and other predictive algorithms, can help us develop better degraders. Do you see any overlap between these two spaces? Yeah, so so for those of you who don't know what AlphaFold, this is really really a tour de force um, in many respects. Um, and this is so this is uh, predicting protein structure, and therefore, if you under can understand something about the protein structure, you have an opportunity then um, in silico to predict what molecules might dock into those sites. Um, so I think that there's a lot of promise for that. Um, I think the, the field of protein structure and the cell biology of how proteins even attain their structure, which we often call protein folding, has been just growing by leaps and bounds. It's amazing. It's amazingly exciting. Uh, the ability to predict the structure opens the possibility, as I said, to identify drug binding sites and accelerate the identification of new drugs. And that includes protein degraders. So um, it also includes the... Um, the, the type of molecules that, uh, that Vertex has for cystic fibrosis, which are conformation correctors. Um, that said, these predicted structures and potential drugs will all need to be tested in biological systems. And remember, these are theoretical. And so it may be that um, the predicted structures and potential drugs uh, may or may not work. And so that will obviously, as is the case in all drug discovery, that will be an iterative process. Um, so often the protein structure is altered by other interacting proteins and other conditions in the cell. And that could be a reason why what's predicted based on, on sequence um, doesn't really uh, bear out when you start to look at a whole cell or a whole organism. So this is where the, again, where the Oricision platform takes the predictions and determines what actually will work. And so it's, it's great to do things in silico, but ultimately we have to test it in biological systems. Um, so it's technology, but also understanding how to apply the technologies in tandem in order to create the solutions. Um, and in this case, we're looking for impactful therapeutics. Perfect. Yeah. Um that's that sounds exciting yeah there is unfortunately no way around biology right there is always a limitation to what you can do in silica 
But it's great to see that a lot of those tools are really pushing uh, the envelope of, of possibility uh, for, for a lot of biotech uh, tools. Great. Uh, Beth, the question that we like to ask on this podcast is related to the future. And I'm curious, how do you see the future of the neurodegenerative diseases uh, and new therapeutics for, for, uh, in this field? Uh, and what I would like to know, what are the three major developments that you see happening or would like to see happen uh, in this field? Yeah, thanks for the question. I think, you know, a lot of people have looked and seen that, you know, there have been a number of failures in neurodegenerative diseases. Uh, and in large measure, that's because it is really hard. Um, but I think that uh, we've talked about a lot of technological advances. And I think people are beginning to think more about um, the diseases. So I think we need to focus on treating the underlying cause of the disease. And I think I've mentioned this before, rather than focusing on individual symptoms that may be common amongst diseases. Um, so this really gets, uh, you know, to, you know, my concept of precision medicine. Um, that's the essence of it, really. Um, and so to make this truly meaningful, we need to apply, I think, digital health and remote tools to clinical trials. I think I've alluded to this a couple of questions ago. In order to get more frequent, richer data, um, about patients and to focus on quality of life. So when you only see a patient maybe once a quarter or once every six months in the course of um, 24 months or more of a clinical study, you you know people come and they do the best they can possibly do. Um, but as we know, for most chronic illnesses, people have good days and people have bad days. And so if you get a good day uh, when people are really trying their best to, to do everything they can when they come to their infrequent visits, you don't get a picture of really the, the overall how is the person doing um, and, and quality of life. And so uh, I think that's where the digital health and, and remote sort of tools, I mean, we all have, you know, well, most of us have the smartphones. And so there's so many different things you can do. I mean, you've probably seen commercials where, you know, you put your two fingers on this little bar and you get in uh, an EKG. So you know how your heart is, but that's just one of many different ways um, we can um, test how, how folks are doing on, on uh, um, our drug candidates. So, um, and thirdly, I think we need to aim to treat earlier in the disease. So before symptoms appear, and as I said, especially before brain cells are lost. Um, this means considering how we live healthier lives, like exercise, sleep, and diet, but it also means we need to be making um, both more efficacious and safer drugs. And so I think that's in large measure where an approach like protein degraders um, or even confirmation correctors could come in because they're selective and not hitting common pathways throughout the cell that uh, the cell needs for other functions, not just involving that single protein. So I'd say overall, the, those would be the three areas. Perfect. Yeah, all of them are immensely important. And let's hope that, that we can make a great progress uh, in all of three of them uh, over the next decade. Perfect. Beth, a lot of people in our audience are young PhD scientists or postdocs, and uh, many of them often ask us to, to, to ask this question. And the question that I would like to ask on their behalf is, 
Which one advice would you give to those young scientists that are thinking about venturing from academia into starting something on their own in the biotech space, starting their own company? Yeah, that's... Um, I know there are more and more biotech starting, and so it's actually you know re really very exciting. So um, first, I think kind of obviously is have a stellar idea that you feel passionate about. And so um, it's basically make something that people really need. I think that that at the heart is what you need for starters. Um, I suggest finding a co-founder so that you have someone to brainstorm with and someone to share the workload because there's a whole lot and, and it can be kind of lonely uh, because you've, you've got to really do a lot of pushing and there are a lot of moving parts, which is good, but, but it helps to have at least um, one co-founder. And often, you know, the co-founders have um, complementary skills. So for instance, I have a co-founder and she's uh, my CFO, my chief financial officer. And so that allows me to focus on the science and, and, and she works on not just the financials, but some of the you know, operating issues uh, and things of that nature. So um, it really has worked quite well. So key is network with others who have started companies and syndicate your, and, and that's critical because you're going to hear what other people's experience are. So I came out of industry, and so I really had a good idea of the drug di drug discovery process. Um, and so, uh, and and I didn't wait to figure out whether uh, was there somebody else I could, you know, bring in as a co-founder initially in terms of the scientific idea. Um, but a lot of that was because of so many years of experience. Um, I think if you're starting earlier in your career, it's hugely important to understand what other people have gone through um, in, in, to start up companies. And I think now there are a number of different accelerators. There are all sorts of programs like that. Um, a lot of networking goes on in, in a lot of the major hubs. I know that's true here in San Diego, in Boston, in San Francisco. But I think um, uh, in a way, COVID has helped us think about other places other than sort of the, the really big biotech centers and that all of those actually are, are you know, real possibilities, New York, Chicago, um, uh, in Texas, uh, in the South, Southeast. So the uh, uh, Research Triangle in North Carolina, there are a lot of different areas. I could even name, name, name more, but the other piece is I think you have to syndicate your idea. And, you know, I would aim at one or two experts in your field or the field that you're trying to get into um, who can validate your ideas. That provides an opportunity for them to be, come on as advisors, but also to act as champions on your behalf. And one of the things that I think is um, really important that I had to build from scratch because I came out of industry, so I really didn't interact with a lot of um, uh, investors is uh, to have somebody who has some connections to investors who can help get you um, introduced. A lot of times this is relationship building. A lot of times it, it will be a process. You're not going to walk up to somebody. They're going to go, oh my God, that's a good idea. Let me give you tons of money. Um, it, I don't, I, maybe for some people that happens. Um, that's not the general experience I've seen. Um, 
sadly, I guess. But, uh, but you know, one of the best ways, I think, is to set out a business plan. And to do that is, is to write a grant. So in addition to writing a grant to get non-dilutive funding, this helps you kind of organize your thoughts, identify gaps. You have something that you can share with other people that they can provide feedback on. Um, and it also helps you prioritize your activities because there are many things you can do, but, but you can't do them all at once. And basically, then get busy, don't stop moving, and be prepared to pivot. Perfect. Yeah, this is uh, this is pure gold. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Beth. This is, I think, a very comprehensive and to the point guide uh, on how to think about about starting the company. And I can only second every uh, every thought uh, on that answer that that you just mentioned. Uh, I think it's. It's really important, and I hope everybody in our audience who are thinking about starting uh, something in the biotech space uh, will listen to what you just have said. Um, this is amazing. And uh, before I let you go, just one last question, perhaps for those who would like to reach out to you in our audience, where can they find you online? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn, uh, Beth J. Hoffman. I don't think there are too many of us. Um, and also at, on Twitter, um, at Beth J. Hoffman. Uh, those are probably the quickest and easiest for everybody to get to. Fantastic. Beth, thank you so much for, for, for this interview. This was amazing. I, I really liked uh, what Origami is doing. Uh, I really like your story and wish you best of luck uh, and in pushing your pipeline forwards to clinics. These are the drugs that we need. Neurodegenerative diseases are hard ones to crack, as you mentioned. And uh, yeah, let's hope we have a new solution on the horizon. We certainly hope so. We certainly hope so. That's something we keep in mind all the time is the patients are waiting and so are their families. So that's really the watchword we live by every day. Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t.com. Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook. Thank you very much, have a great day and until next time.